Pat Freire was someone in the south inner city who instilled fear. His reputation had grown as someone who was very violent, very extreme, and wasn't afraid to use violence. He, he would go on to be involved in the Crumlin Drimna feud. He was involved in the feud with the INLA, and ultimately then the Kinnahan Hutch feuds. He enjoyed that. He enjoyed the limelight. He enjoyed the media spotlight. And he ultimately enjoyed his ego. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He grew up in the shadow of one of Gangland's most notorious murder machines, a man for whom violence was a lifestyle choice. And when Lee Canavan set out to kill with his idol, Fat Freddie Thompson, he was sure that he too would be untouchable. But had Thompson spiralled out of control by the time he decided to kill David Dohey Douglas on a Dublin street? Or had he just started to believe his own image too much? This week, as Canavan starts a life sentence behind bars for his role in the murder, I'm talking to crime author and journalist Stephen Breen about the life and crimes of Fat Freddy, documented in his book, A Gangster's Life. We trace his rise from the streets of Dublin 8 to the very top of organised crime. And we examine the mistakes he made on the day he set out to kill. A catalogue of errors that would lead a Garda team to the ultimate prize. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Stephen, the Special Criminal Court found Lee Canavan guilty of murder, but they stopped short of saying he was the trigger man. They felt that there wasn't quite enough evidence um, so as they could definitively say that in the murder of Dahi Douglas. But I think what has emerged is his absolute loyalty to Freddie Thompson and um, how he really has spent his career as a sidekick to somebody who's one of the most dangerous criminals we've known in the past two decades anyway in organised crime. Yeah, well, Lee Canavan is just like many young men, Nicola, in the south inner city area of Dublin, who would have grown up knowing about Fat Freddie Thompson, knowing about Fat Freddie Thompson's uh, reputation, his involvement with the Kinnahan cartel. And I think in relation to the murder of Dahi Douglas, which Lee Canavan has been convicted of now, um, he had was was quite willing to get involved with Freddie Thompson. And on that occasion, you have Freddie Thompson as a senior figure within the Kinnahan cartel being involved in the uh, orchestration of that murder. And it was Thompson's role to recruit young men around him, uh, all to have different roles with the, on the day of the murder. And Lee Canavan was... Part of that uh, hit team, it was a four-man hit team, um, and we saw at the court recently where he was convicted of of the joint enterprise where the Gardaí from Kevin Street had him on CCTV uh, in some of the cars that were being used um, on the murder gang on the day of the murder. But obviously during the court proceedings against Canavan, um, it was alleged in court that he was the gunman, although the Special Criminal Court uh, ruled that there wasn't enough evidence to suggest that he actually was the gunman, but nevertheless, he still was convicted uh, for enterprise, along with two other men, 
young young men from the south inner city um, who were known to Freddie Thompson, and but who were also known in the, the south inner city as well. These young men, Nathan Foley and Gareth Brophy, were on Facebook. They were quite public. People in the area knew them. But yet these were the young men that Freddie Thompson turned to to help him murder Dahi Douglas. And Freddie Thompson is serving a life uh, term in prison for the murder of Dahi Douglas, killed outside a shop there on Bridgefoot Street um, in, in around the Liberties, just beside the Oliver Bond flat complex, which was the um, the childhood home of, of Daniel Kinahan and, and his brother Christopher Jr. Um, Douglas was one of the feud murders. But before we get on to that and the details of the murder, which are intriguing, and I know you have followed it very intricately, but you've also written a book about Freddie Thompson, and I think people are people are very interested in him as a character. I certainly am, and I've always been. To me, he was a thug, and I always wondered why he stood out, why he was different, why he became a leader. Um, he was born into not a particularly large family, but uh, a family within the Dublin 8 area, street traders, they would have been have a history of street traders. And I think the father left the home early on and Freddie and his brother Richie kind of became the male, the dominant male figures in the home. But Freddie was known as a bully as a child and he became a very effective sort of street fighter, decent enough boxer. Take us back to, to him growing up and emerging into a majorly important figure in gangland as just a teenager. I think um, when you look back, and we all remember what Larry Dunn said, if you think we're bad, what do you see what's coming next? I think we can look at Freddie Thompson in that context. When I was doing research for the book um, in relation to Thompson, I spoke to a number of uh, former residents in the south inner city. There are people who would have known him growing up, but also um, speaking to former members of the Gardaí who would have known him as a young child when they were based in the Kim Street area. And even at one stage, there was a suggestion that Thompson wanted to be, become a Garda when he was older. But obviously, as he became involved in, in teenage years, he showed very little interest in education. He was a keen boxer, as you say, but you could see where he was influenced by people like, you know, Martin Cahill in, in that area, Martin Foley. And I think his path was set in from his young teenage years where he was first arrested when he was only 16 for public order offences. The same again when he was 17 uh, for public order and then for threatening behaviour as well. So, but it progressed as the years went by. And I think by 2001, he was very close to Declan Gavin, his childhood friend, his best friend. He was very close to him. But by that stage, they were young men growing up in the south inner city. And they were involved in drug dealing and drug dealing at a very senior level. And I think when Declan Gavin was killed by Brian Radigan in August 2001, that's when Thompson saw an opportunity for him to follow his path to get involved in organised crime and to take control of the gang that Declan Gavin was running. And from then onwards, we see a spiral of carnage that has followed Thompson everywhere. He, um, his propensity for violence increased over the years. And even as a young man, even we go back to 2001, he's linked to gun attacks. And there's one occasion where he, he stopped by the, the Gardaí on patrol and he said, I'm going to be the next John Gilligan and you're going to be busy. And I think he did fulfill that prophecy because 
Over the next 20 years, he, he would go on to be involved in the, the Crumlin Drimna feud. He was involved in the feud with the INLA and ultimately then the Kinnahan and Hutch feud. So you had someone who was determined to get involved in organized crime. But I think the more his reputation had grown in the south inner city as someone who was very violent, very extreme and wasn't afraid to use violence, he enjoyed that. He enjoyed the limelight. He enjoyed the media spotlight. And he ultimately enjoyed his ego, and his ego grew over the years where Fat Freddy was someone in the south inner city who instilled fear mm-hmm. and terror in many of the communities. Everywhere he went. Funny you should mention John Gilligan, because really with the demise of Gilligan in 1996, when his gang uh, shot Veronica Guerin, he fled to England and they were subsequently dismantled, brought back, put before the Special Criminal Court. He got a lengthy sentence for drug trafficking. Um, But Gilligan had sort of used the likes of Freddie and his cohorts, who were young teenagers between the Dublin 8 area and the Crumlin area, as street dealers. And he had trusted some of them to such an extent that as young teenagers, he'd even brought them to Holland or allowed them deal with some of his suppliers. And it was a kind of, in a way, a baptism of fire for them into the drugs underworld. But it also became very advantageous for them when Gilligan essentially shot himself in the foot and ended his business when it was just becoming hugely successful. There was a vacuum, as they call it, in in gangland, which exists when one mob are taken out. And these young teenagers, including Freddie and his cousins, we might add, David, uh, the late David Byrne and Liam Byrne in, in the Crumlin area, they moved in to fill that void. And they were there with the connections. They were young, they were ruthless, they were ambitious, they were all those things. So from a kind of a, you know, a clinical look at organised crime, they had a really lucky start. Which, which was Gilligan's demise and the fact that they had the, the, the tools in place to, to go and do the deals themselves. Um, I think there was so much money to be had. They fell out. The two sides fell out, as we know. Freddie ended up leading one side of that Trum- Crumlin-Drimna feud. Um, and in a way, he kind of, I suppose you could say he became blooded. I, I think it was, the, the, without question, the Crumlin-Drimna feud is what made Freddie Thompson uh, be uh, put forward as a very senior figure in organised crime. He is someone who adapted to the feud that was taking place. He is someone who was determined to have the upper hand, and they did have the upper hand uh, throughout the, the Crumlin Drimna feud. He had connections to the Kinnahan cartel, like even Christy Kinnahan and uh, John Cunningham. So um, he, he was very well organised. Um, I, I think it's something that he adapted to quite easily. I think it's also something that he enjoyed. But during that feud, you had innocent family members of both factions targeted. You had pipe bombings, arson attacks, gun attacks. But from that time as well, like Freddie was under constant pressure. You know, He was dressing up as a woman. Uh, he was uh, master of disguise in the South Inner City. But it's something that he seemed to enjoy were in the middle of a feud where many young men were losing their lives. The community of the South Inner City were living in fear and terror. They didn't know when the next shooting was going to be. People couldn't go for a drink without fear of a gunman coming in. And it's something that that he really uh, adapted to and embraced, I think, in those early years. But And then you see him, at the same time, he's in the midst of this brutal gang war. You also have him cementing his gang in terms of their contacts overseas. You see him in 2006 
going to Rotterdam, where he's trying to arrange a huge drug shipment. Of course, that doesn't go according to plan when he later gets arrested. But it just shows you that at the same time he was waging war on the streets of Dublin, he was also trying to build up uh, that the, the gang that Declan Gavin had built up with the support of the Kinnahan cartel, building up a huge drugs empire and bringing drugs into the country, especially in the south inner city and flooding that area and creating misery for many families. So he was almost like an anarchist when it comes to the, the criminal underworld. It was just chaos, Nicola. It really was. I mean, if you even if when you look back over the years, so from 2001, people very close to him were being killed. So they were, and he saw a lot of deaths at that in those early years. When you look at um, 2005, his good friends uh, Darren Gagan and Gavin Byrne were murdered. Some people suggested that he ordered that because uh, they were involved in the financial dealings of the guy, and, and Freddie Thompson wasn't happy. And then you go over the years when 2006, when he goes to Holland, you know the, the Dutch police go into an apartment and they find drugs and uh, weapons as well. Like the Dutch Dutch police were afraid from what we understand, to go into the flat when Freddie was there because they were concerned that he might engage them and fire, and fire at them and, and try and kill their officers. So they waited until he left the flat before moving in. And then if you look to Spain, even at that time in, in the middle of the feud, he's under a lot of pressure. In 2007, you have him being targeted by Declan Duffy in the INLA. So in 2008, he goes to Spain where he's given sanctuary by the Kinnahan cartel. And when he's in Spain, He's in a car in which his good friend uh, Paddy Doyle is shot dead, probably by his own gang. So death and violence seemed to follow him no matter where he went. And it's that idea of being able to kill your own, you know, to, to be able to sit beside somebody in a, in a pub, put your arm around them and, you know, share a pint and the next day be in a car and to know that they are going to be shot dead and to continue that act. That is a coldness and a psychopathy that few people I think, really have. I think there's a finite number of people who are that bad, even in the underworld. I'm sure you've met plenty criminals in your day as well. Maybe we just meet the kind of okay ones, I don't know. But, you know, you can see humanity in them and sometimes you can, you know, you can vaguely understand why they got in. It's usually to give their kids a better life or whatever. Uh, It's a violent world, but a lot of them don't like the violence. Yeah, but Freddie Thompson, I think, thrived on the violence. It's something that he enjoyed. It's Obviously, he would have been under immense pressure as the leader in the, the one faction of the Crumlin from the feud, not just from people like Brian Radigan and his um, associates who were trying to kill him on a daily basis, you know, walking around and his bulletproof vest at all time, but under constant pressure from the, the Guardi as well, moving between Ireland, England, and also in Spain too. It's something that he enjoyed, but Violence to him, he, he wasn't afraid that this showed assaults. You know, he, he acted as an enforcer in the past. Anybody who owed a drug debt, no matter how small, he was willing to dish out a beating. Uh, other occasions where he had heard a rumour where someone was trying to, you know, uh, make moves on his uh, his girlfriend, uh, Vicky Dempsey, and he would have dished out a, a few beatings then as well. So I think uh, the more he progressed within the realms of organised crime, the more his stock grew and the more his reputation uh, for violence crew and people were genuinely afraid of him because they knew he was someone who wasn't afraid to use extreme levels of violence and, and someone that the guards were very concerned about as well but he saw it as a joke I, I think there were times when he would be stopped by the guardie and he would laugh he'd try and hug them or he would talk about incidents that had taken place you know so here was someone who was actually enjoying being in the midst 
this mayhem and carnage. It was a lifestyle for him, um, really. Um, interestingly, you mention his girlfriend, Vicky Dempsey, his long-term partner. Um, her own father was target of the concerned parents against drugs movement, although he had no convictions for crime. And her brother was a close associate. Carl Dempsey was a close associate of Freddie's. So she was no stranger to the world as such. But it's hard to imagine how somebody so evil and so violent can then have this relationship, this loving relationship. I mean, he was very possessive of her, there's no doubt, but he did seem to absolutely adore Vicky Dempsey. I think the most important thing to him, uh, even though he was in the midst of this gang war and obviously he was about running the drugs gang and making profits, I think the most important thing to him were his immediate family and his then partner and the mother of his child, um, Vicky Dempsey. I remember when I was doing research for the book, um, spoke to someone who had known the, the Thompson family and they, they, they had a letter that um, Thompson had written to Vicky Dempsey where he had declared his love for her and his focus was going to be on her, on their, their son, on the future, you know, building the future together away from crime. And he was just begging her to stay with him and to stay by his side. And she did uh, over the years until obviously he's been convicted recently for, for life. So, But he was someone who uh, was obsessed with her um, uh, was hoping that she, when he was in prison, he was in prison for an assault in 2006, that she would stand by his side. And if he had heard any rumours at all about any men you know, making advances towards her, he was quick to order his associates to dish out some serious uh, assaults. But for him, you know, that was his, the most important thing to him in his life. And he did stand, stand by her. Um, she stood by him over the years. And But as the years progressed, and the more involved and entrenched he became in organised crime, they drifted apart and ultimately are no longer together now. She She's a street trader herself, so she has continued that long history of, um, you know, of, of that area. Sometimes the, the Dublin 8 area in particular is synonymous with that occupation. Um, and actually, a lot of people who've met her say she's quite nice. Yeah, she's very civil. I, I met her when I was doing the research for the book. I just approached her. Um, at the, the market stall in Grafton Street, and she was very civil. Um, she was very decent. Uh, I was getting some abuse from some of her colleagues, but she was saying, hold on, look, I'm sorry, I just don't want to go, go down this road. So I think maybe she wants to put this all behind her because she would have lived under immense pressure as well. Obviously, they, they both enjoyed the, 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 the spoils of the drugs trade because we had photographs of Freddie and her enjoying the high life in Amsterdam and also uh, in Spain as well. So, But I think now, because of the pressure that she would have been under, you know, is this the night Freddie's going to be killed? Is this the night the guards come into the house? Or are you going to come into the house? You know, that's some pressure to live on. It's not a normal functioning family life where they have a son, they have responsibility to, to him. So it was quite dysfunctional. But I think now that, you know, Freddie is now serving life uh, for murder, she's now getting on with her own life and uh, is no longer involved with, with people like him. And of course, while we can be quick to judge, nobody really knows what's going on behind closed doors. So, you know, there's no doubt he, he is the, the violent character he is. I'm sure that doesn't totally switch off um, at any point. So by 2010, 
Thompson is regarded here in, in Ireland as a kind of a, a walking murder machine when it comes to the Crumlin Drimna feud. But he's very, very entrenched at that point in Spain, as you say, and the Kinnahan mob. We have Operation Shovel, which we're told is the takedown of um, the, the, the Kinnahans. And it results in a load of arrests in Spain, in Ireland, in the UK. Freddie, I think, has slipped the net and is in Amsterdam with his good friend Gary Hutch. Um, but he is named in extradition papers and how far or how deeply entrenched he is within the Kinahan mob becomes evident. He's somebody who's buying weapons for them. He's organising drug deals. He's very seriously um, up, the, up the ladder there, isn't he? I think when we look back at Freddie's time in Spain and when we look at Operation Shovel, you know, um, we had access to the Spanish investigation files when my colleague and I, Owen, were working on another book, The Cartel, and the Spanish clearly painted a picture of Freddy when they were doing their surveillance as someone who was just one step below uh, Daniel Kinahan in terms of the structure of that organisation, and he had equal status as Gary Hutch. And Freddy's main role was to supply weapons and also drugs from North Africa and bringing them in, obviously, to Spain and onwards to Europe. But also at the same time, he was very close to Daniel Kinahan, you know, obviously coming from the same area of the city in the city. But he was held in contempt by Daniel's father, Christy Kinahan Sr., because there were times when Freddie was employed as a driver and also as a gardener in Christy Kinahan's plush uh, apartment in Spain. So that was the different levels there. But he was someone who was trusted. He was someone... When we look at the wiretaps from the Spanish authorities, where he would often be very brazen on the phone, whereas Gary Hutch would be very cautious. So they still had a good life in Spain as well, but there were times when Freddie would talk about bullets. You know, they would talk about deliveries being made. And there was one occasion where he came very close to being caught when the Spanish police were, were, were trailing them and when the shipment was coming in um, from North Africa. They had to go to Portugal to collect it, Freddie and Gary Hutch, but unfortunately they lost. Uh, both Gary Hutch and Freddie Thompson, so he, he escaped justice on that occasion. But by the time the Operation Shovel uh, uh, kicked in, and obviously we saw the high-profile arrests, you, know, you, you were in Spain, you, you know what, what it was like there. Um, we, uh, Freddie was away in Amsterdam at, at that time, so he wasn't arrested. And I know from the, there were phone calls made between Gary Hodge and, uh, and Freddie Thomas and Gary Hodge talking about how everyone was being arrested and how his head was spinning and you know Freddie was panicking as well. But um, he, he was targeted by the Operation Shovel team and he subsequently returned to Spain. But he's since been cleared of of that investigation. I think that investigation was a, a disaster, really, for for many reasons. But um, in the kind of the, the the years after that, he's over and back. To Ireland. He's between Holland, Spain and Ireland of what we know of. I'm sure he has plenty of, of holidays elsewhere as well. But he's interesting because he comes back to Dublin and he goes back to his mother's house. He never bought a property. He never was really very flash. I mean, the flashest we could see Freddie was a Canada goose jacket, you know, on a cold day. He wasn't, where did the money go? I mean, he must have made a fortune, but there's been no criminal assets bureau case against him because there's nothing to be had. He clearly has made a lot of money and squirreled it away somewhere. Has, did he ever enjoy the money or was he just hooked and addicted to that dangerous lifestyle? Obviously, Nicola, we see the criminals who are addicted to the, we see the Gucci guy, Mr. Flashy and Finglas and the, the designer clothing, the holidays, the luxury yachts, the fine dining. 
But for Freddie, I think his addiction was the violence. His addiction was his persona within the media, his ego as well. That Bat Freddie Thompson, I'm the number one most violent gangster in Ireland. I think that was his main addiction. But I remember in Operation Lamp against the Burn Gang, Fred Thompson's name was mentioned, and there were certain bail hearings as well. And um, when Gardy were objecting to Freddie Thompson receiving bail after he was charged with the murder of the High Douglas, that they had concerns that he did have access to wealth because of his relationship with the Kinnahan cartel, and he was someone who could uh, pose a flight risk. But when you look at him, his tracksuit bottoms, it was only recently in 2015, in the early days of 2016, he's worn the Hugo Boss hat, you know, the man bag as well. So, But over the years, he was back to his mother's house. Like the Herald photographed him standing outside his mother's house with David Byrne with a cup of tea. You know, and he was someone who wasn't afraid to go back to the south inner city because of the reputation that he had built up over the years. But when you contrast him with the the the, the image cultivated by someone like Christy Kinnan, I remember interview, interviewing a former detective sergeant who talked who talked about interviewing Christy Kinnan, and when he walked into the room, it was like Christy Kinnan was had this like a millionaire walking in, and you could smell the, the nice expensive aftershave. Freddie Thompson wasn't like that. He he was happy to walk around in his tracksuit bottoms. Uh, his his hoodie, you know, and pick his nose when he was out talking to the guards, just really vulgar and really ignorant and complete contrast from some of the people he was associated with. I have to say, he looked utterly ridiculous with the man bag, um, that photograph of him with his little, you know, and even in the clothes, he just, they don't seem to fit. They just, not physically fit him, but they just, he looks odd in those kind of uh, designer threads. Um, it's not something you, you expect from him. I think when David Byrne was shot dead in the Regency and that funeral, um, which I've only spoken about recently on this podcast, uh, when we, we, we talked about Bomber Kavanagh, Bomber Kavanagh was up the front of that funeral, front and central, chief mourner, along with Daniel Kinahan. But Freddie was there too. Freddie was on the other side of Daniel Kinahan at that funeral. Now, David Byrne was his cousin. And... Um, but, you know, he was taking on a kind of a godfather sidekick role. That image, those, that perfectly choreographed funeral wasn't just something that, that, that just happened in a normal case. People mull around. Those scenes were created as a show of power and to create fear in, in the rivals at that point being the Hutch faction. But Freddie really cemented his place that day, didn't he, at that funeral? And you could see he was enjoying it. Oh, he was, without question, he was enjoying it because here he was with the, the spotlight on this funeral. It was like a show of strength, an old paramilitary style funeral where they all were wearing the same outfits. You had the, the, the limos as well there for, for David Byrne. But Freddie took centre stage. Here he was standing alongside Daniel Kinahan, the man later named in court as the controller and manager of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group. Freddie's the one who went to Dublin Airport to collect Daniel Kinahan when he returned for the funeral of David Byrne. I think he enjoyed being back in the limelight, but at the same time, he was being photographed alongside Daniel Kinahan. I think that was also cementing his position within the Kinahan organised crime group, whereas perhaps in the past, Freddie he would have been seen as a loose cannon, someone who was also expendable. Because of his experience in the Crumlin Drimna feud, because of his experience of waging the Gangland War over the years, he was someone who was going to play a key role in the Kinahan's onslaught against the Hutch group. So it was important for Freddie uh, to be there alongside Daniel Kinahan and to show that he was at the forefront 
of any vendetta, any war against the Hutch group. Yeah, in a way you could see that he was like he was like a kid being allowed into the gang properly, wasn't he? He was being brought in and, you know, he was sta- he was just so delighted to be standing there. So on one side you'd Bomber Kavanagh who took on a lot of the violence that um, happened after the Regency Hotel. And Freddie, he, he shouldn't have been caught up in that murder. He was above that, wasn't he? But we'll get on to that. David Dahi Douglas, a criminal himself um, with history with the paramilitaries and had served a sentence for cocaine trafficking. Before the Regency, there had been an incident, hadn't there, in the Red Cow when um, when an associate of Daniel Kinahan, they were all there for a boxing weigh-in at the Red Cow one evening or a party afterwards, whatever it was. And there was an incident when Liam... Uh, Roe, who was another cousin of the Burns and another key member of that organisation, stepped outside for a cigarette or whatever it was and he saw something in the car park. He rushed back in. Uh, he thought he saw somebody trying to pull a gun. Uh, there's mixed stories, but a gun appears to have been pulled, possibly was jammed, the car fled. But when he went back inside to the boxing uh, way in, that was the end of the party. Everybody disappeared in every direction. And it was um, an incident that was reported a bit on, but within the realms of, of gangland and what was happening within that Kinahan organised crime group, it was a serious incident. And David Dahi Douglas was one of those who was blamed on being in the car that night. He was. I mean, within a matter of weeks, uh, the Kinahan cartel had identified, which they believed were the two men who were in the car that night, the two men that they believed um, were targeting uh, members of the Kinahan cartel, Liam Rowe, also uh, Freddie's cousin. So I think well, it was just based on a rumour. Um, I know it was speaking to uh, the, the Guardian in relation to this this incident, where even the Guardian confirmed themselves that it's their belief that the Kinahan cartel believed that Dahi Douglas and Darren Kearns, who was subsequently murdered in December 2015, were the two young men who were in the car that night but this was all based on rumour. There was absolutely no evidence to suggest that, that both of these men were involved uh, in this incident. Um, and that was enough for the cartel to sign the death warrant of Dahi Douglas. Obviously, Kearns was killed before that, but that's all they needed. I think that showed how little value they placed on human life when the Guardi would also later confirm that um, Dahi Douglas was actually in a pub in another part of the town in the city that night in, on the north side. So it couldn't have been him who was involved in this. And I think if Dahi Douglas had absolutely no idea that he, he was under threat, if he did think he was under threat, if he was part of the Hutch uh, gang, if he was intent on waging war against Freddie Thompson and his associates, why would he be working in the heart of the south inner city, Freddie Thompson's uh, turf? It just doesn't make any sense. So what... Once they had identified him as being involved in this, that was enough. No need for any evidence. His death warrant was signed. So what we do know is whenever an incident, a significant incident happens in the underworld and, and that sort of attempted shooting or scenes outside the Red Cow that night, that was a significant incident. While the Guardi will be investigating um, kind of in the ordinary world, the mobs will be investigating themselves. They do live in a parallel world to us, so they have their own, and and this we've seen in in various other incidents and murders and attempted murders. They investigate themselves. They come up with their own conclusions, and their proof doesn't need to be 
the same standard of proof as the, the normal world. So they identified Douglas, they identified Kearns. Kearns is shot dead some months later and Douglas survives a, a shooting. He's out walking his dog and he is shot, injured, miraculously survives. And I think actually posted pictures to his Facebook site from his hospital bed that he'd, he'd survived. Somewhere behind the scenes, there must have been communication going on. Douglas must have reached out to the Kinahan organisation and convinced them, or so he thought, that he had nothing to do with that. I do recall um, it going around about that he had an alibi and this, that and the other, and that they had believed that he wasn't involved. But we've seen that. It's a bit of an MO of the Kinahan organisation, that they lead people to believe that they're safe. And when they're living in that belief and carrying on in their ordinary life, then they attack them. Same thing pretty much happened with Gary Hutch in Spain. So Douglas was, as you say, he was living an ordinary life. He was in with his, his wife had a shop called Shoetown on Bridgefoot Street in, in the summer of 2018. And he was there that day and he was just... He, he smelled curry, I think I recall, from, from the creche next door and he was friendly enough with the creche owner. And the creche owner, he liked his grub apparently, Dahi Douglas. The creche owner said to him, listen, I have a bit left over, here you go, I'll give you a bowl. And he handed him in a bowl and he went into the shop to enjoy this, this meal and he was, a gunman ran in and he was shot dead. But tell me what was going on in the background there because... That was a single little spot of Dublin. But around that and and in the run-up to that, Thompson and his mob were circling and they were coming in for the kill. Well, that day, um, uh, Freddie Thompson, in relation to the Dahi Douglas murder, was central to it. He was the mastermind. He's the one who recruited the hit team for the murder that day. Um, he was played a key role on the murder day because he was there in, a, in convoy earlier that day. They were seen on CCTV in different cars. They had four cars, two stolen cars, two legit cars where they would use, you know, one would be a getaway car, one would be a switched car. And Thompson would be there on the day too doing uh, surveillance on the shop, even the days before uh, the incident took place. He, he would have been captured on CCTV driving um, driving uh, alongside the shop and, and looking in. But on the day of the murder itself, you have the getaway driver and the gunman in, in their Mercedes. But you also have Thompson as well driving past the shop on the day of the murder, parking up on Mead Street, going close to where uh, his, his family uh, had their trading stalls, standing in the middle of Mead Street on a hot summer's day. And here he is, very brazen, very uh, open, you know, dismantling uh, a phone. Uh, destroying the SIM card on the phone and then also handing the car keys that he was driving to another woman. And I think it showed his arrogance where even though he wasn't the man who pulled the trigger, but he was still willing on, a, on broad, in broad daylight to get involved in this criminal enterprise, to lead the murder team, to drive by the shop, to, to engage in, in phone calls uh, with those involved in the murder and to stand quite openly in his stomping ground and on his, in his patch and watch as the events unfold. And surely if he was driving by that shop on, on numerous occasions, not just that day, he would have seen that Dahi Douglas's 14-year-old daughter also worked in that shop and was also present. But I don't think that even resonated with him. And when he drove by on that day, I think when, when you look back, he probably thought, oh, I can get away with this because 
I'm not part of the, the, the hit team. I'm not the gunman. You know, I, I'm not in the getaway car and, and I'm away from this, even though he was at the heart of it by organizing it all and recruiting these young men. But I think he underestimated the Garda investigation. And I think that even think about CCTV. And I think if we look at um, some of the interviews that Freddie Thompson had, you know, following his arrest, the guards are saying to him, um, you know, why are you getting involved in this? You're becoming sloppy. You're running around now with um, Laurel and Hardy type characters. Um, you used to be King Dingling. You're not the Kinnahans are. What's happened to you? You know, your, your prints are all over this, but did you not think about the CCTV? And he couldn't answer any of those questions, but that ultimately, his arrogance and his ego proved to be his downfall that day. And like, to be clear, he stood under a CCTV camera to do this. Now, in order, uh, and probably following on his former hero, Martin Cahill, who always showed up somewhere like a police station when he wanted an alibi when something was going off, he was placing himself away from the scene of the actual murder and he knew damn well. He knows that turf, that Mead Street, that Dublin 8 turf, like the back of his hand, you can be sure he knows where every camera is. He did it on purpose because he thought he could get away with it. He didn't consider that directing that operation was going to be something that the guards would go after. And really, it was only after 2016 that they did start actively going after everybody involved in murder plots. And it has become a new form of policing. Um, in a way, it's to go after every element of a murder plot. Um, you know, I think it was in this trial that Sean Galan said that there was one finger on the trigger but many hands on the gun. Um which I think is a really good analogy of what happens in a gangland murder. It ain't just the guy with the mask on who pulls the trigger and runs away. In, in actual fact, despite the fact that he does the damage, that individual can be a lesser uh, person within a mob and usually is. But Freddie, like, he... The question about why he got involved in that, was there something personal with Dahi Doug Douglas or did he just want to get in on the action? I mean, we've spoken about the amount of money he would have earned, how senior he was in the Kinahan Organised Crime Group and in the Byrne Group. You don't see any of those other key players, the likes of Bomber Kavanagh, the likes of Daniel Kinahan, the likes of Liam Byrne, any of those senior ranking people get anywhere near the action. They don't, they're so far away, they're hands off that it's really, really tough to get them. But did he have a personal grudge, I wonder, as well against Dahi Douglas? Or did he just feel that Dublin 8 was his was his turf and that he was totally untouchable there? Yeah, obviously, well, that's a good point that you make about him being untouchable. I think what happened that day, a number of factors when you look at his ego and you look at his reputation were obviously key factors there and him getting involved in such a, a brutal murder in, in broad daylight. And unlike many of his associates, they would, wouldn't have been anywhere near this. And I think it's interesting when, I know when I was doing the, the book, uh, the interviews with Gardy, the, the interactions when he, when he was arrested and the, the guards were saying things like, you're meant to be leading this. Uh, you were seen coming and going from the cars. Why would you be so obvious? Um, you're not top dog anymore. The Kinnahans are. Uh, did they come to you? Did they tell you? To, to do this, uh, did you see his daughter? You know, you're, you're the man who pulled the strings, but you were cocky, but you were also careless. And I think that's important as well. He was cocky and he was careless. And only he can answer why he played such a hands-on role that caught him um, a life sentence. And I, I, 
but ultimately think that he was getting his orders from above. His paymaster, his boss, was Daniel Kinahan at the heart, and people like Bomber Kavanagh at the heart of the organized crime group. So for him to say, maybe to maybe uh, show that the Kinahan group that you know he was capable of waging the war against the Hutch gang, um, he was convinced that um, uh, Dahi Douglas was involved in a plot uh, to murder his cousin. So I think it was his way of showing the cartel that he could put a hit team together, that he, he could plan a murder and they could execute a murder, which which they did that day. But ultimately, that decision came back to haunt them because he's now serving life. And I recall during his trial for the murder of Dahi Douglas, he actually, you know, things kind of can sometimes amuse you at the heart of all these things. And when you hear what they're putting up as a defence, but I remember Freddie tried to claim that his human rights had been breached because of the CCTV that had been captured all over town. Because what was what lay at the heart of these convictions, and we'll come on to Lee Canavan's now, which is has just, he's just been, been uh, sentenced in the last week. But what lay at the heart of that was an incredible amount of actual hard graft from, from the Garda team because to put together CCTV from a city like Dublin, they followed and traced those four cars as they made their way round. And as I said, as they circled their prey in the middle. I mean, it was hours and hours and hours of work. And, um, you know, that that's really what stood to them when they got their conviction that they had all their ducks in a row and you know, in a court of law, the state has to prove beyond reasonable doubt, which they did. But Freddie was hoping that he was going to be able to convince the three-judge court that his human rights were breached because they shouldn't have been able to to gather the CCTV of his movements, that his movements were private and he had a right to do what he wanted to do. It was quite extraordinary. And maybe there is an insight into, into his mind. I'm sure his legal team you know, any decent legal team are going to chance their arm with anything. But, you know, he I, I was just watching him and he just thought that he was there. Now he had them. It was incredible, really. That's another example of his arrogance and his ego, where he could think that he could get involved in planning and masterminding the murder of Dahi Douglas and be present on the day. But did he forget that he was in the Ford Fiesta? He left his DNA in the Ford Fiesta. He's in the Ford Fiesta with Lee Canavan. So he is. He's also convicted of the murder. He is seen with the other cars and convoy. They're seen popping up the parking meters that day. And then you have their associate Nathan Foley being seen on CCTV going into a phone shop to buy the burner phones to be used. And it just seemed to be a catalogue of errors from uh, Freddie Thompson, someone who is very experienced in, in murder. You, you describe him as a murder machine, which is well justified for him to get involved in this. And Again, to go back to the Garda interviews where they say to him, uh, you know, you've done a lot of terrible things. You've seen a lot of terrible things, uh, you know, done to you in terms of death. But does it not play on you? Do you need to see a counsellor? And again, he treated these questions with contempt. He would scratch his arm or spit into a water bottle and uh, other issues. And they've asked him, uh, you know, but they put it to him that he was down the pecking order in terms the structures of the Kinahan organised crime gang. And I think this case showed that because he must have been ordered to go there that day to um, organise this murder, the logistics, the planning. But Freddie was also someone who was forensically aware because he'd been down this road many times before. And yet here he is in broad daylight being careless and cocky, as the guards say, 
getting involved in, in, in a murder, which is so open. They eventually always trip themselves up, really, in my experience. But it brings us on to Lee Canavan. And we started this discussion, Stephen, by saying he was a typical young guy from the area who probably looked up to, to Freddie. I mean, Freddie was an employer. He was a <laughs> he was an employer in the Dublin 8 area. And, and Lee Canavan was somebody who was obviously there to make money. But he always looked like a little sidekick of his, didn't he? He was always standing beside him and posing for photographs with him. And they actually looked weirdly alike. Yeah, they did. And Canavan just sort of emerged on the scene just before uh, the feud started in 2016, where Canavan was in his mid-20s and would have been a driver for Freddie Thompson, because Thompson is obviously, he, he was banned. Another one of the offences he's committed over the years. So Canavan uh, would have uh, been very close to, to Thompson, someone that, that Thompson would have trusted. Uh, and we know that if we go back to 2013, when Thompson comes home for uh, Christopher Git Warren's funeral, there's an incident in, in a pub where he, Thompson gets involved in a, a case of just attacking young men for no reason, you know. And and at that time, you know, uh, Lee Canavan would have known Thompson very well. And obviously, Canavan would have grown up hearing about Freddie Thompson, hearing about F- Freddie Thompson's exploits through the Crumlin during the feud. And Lee Canavan was another young man who showed no interest in, in education or, or full time employment. And for him, I, I think it was a badge of honour to get involved with Freddie Thompson. And it showed the trust that Thompson had in him by recruiting him that day for uh, the murder on Dahi Douglas. But also as a result of his association with Canavan, uh, Thompson was able to bring in Canavan's half-brother, uh, Gareth Brophy. So, but he, he's surrounding himself here with, with young men, impressionable young men who would have looked up to Thompson, knowing all about his pedigree in Gangland, his background. But, you know, when they sit in their prison cells now thinking, why did they get involved with, with someone like him? Because it's cost them many years of their life. And it just shows you, though, about the power and the pull that Freddie Thompson had, especially in the south inner city. And we'll go back to the interviews again with Gardy. The Gardy, when interviewing Freddie, says, you've surrounded yourself with a bunch of apes just to show that, you know, why are you getting involved with these kids, really, who have no experience in Guyland, uh, or feuds, no experience in organised crime, and yet these, these are the guys Freddie turned to, you know, because he, he, there was no one else there for him to, to support him in terms of carrying out this this murder. Mm-hmm. So, Stephen, what did Canavan do after the murder? He went on the run uh, after the, the murder, where you have Canavan um, fleeing to the UK, um, uh, along with Gareth Brophy, his half-brother. Thompson also goes on, on the run as well. He's arrested in November 2016. So it's then afterwards where you have Gar- or Nathan Foley is the only one who stays in Ireland. Thompson is the first one to be sentenced, followed by Nathan Foley, participating in an organised crime gang. So it's the first time where you have all four members of the um, the hit team who, who are now jailed. So when Canavan is later extradited uh, to Ireland and to stand trial in the Special Criminal Court, pleaded not guilty. And the judgment was just given last week where the judge, uh, the three-judge panel were satisfied that he uh, was, a, was involved in a joint enterprise in the murder of uh, Dahi Douglas, but also the criminal damage in relation to one of the cars that they used. And if we look at the reckless nature of that, we talk about the CCTV footage on the day of the murder. They even made a mistake in, in trying to uh, set fire to their, their getaway car and other cars that were used and they were seen doing this here and you know they were stopped by the guards. So it was just a catalogue of errors and mistakes that were made that day. 
when they were being directed by someone with such experience as Freddie Thompson. Do you have any idea how they're getting on behind bars? Or is Canavan and, and Thompson serving their time together? Will he still sort of live as his in-house sidekick in prison? Well, I think well, Thompson is in the Midlands at the moment, so Canavan uh, is in Mountjoy. So basically, Thompson was, we think, you know, struggling to adapt uh, to prison life, he was being held in solitary confinement. He'd also uh, gone before the courts as well, trying to get access to educational uh, facilities as well. Apparently, he's made peace now with Brian Radigan. Um, so he's how that uh, transpires is, is anyone's guess, but he, he's keeping the head down. And the, the other individuals, Gareth Brophy and Nathan Foley, haven't come on the under the radar of the Irish Prison Service. And it'll be interesting to see how, how Canavan now adapts to serving a life sentence. And no doubt they shall, you know, they're moved around a good bit as things happen in, in the prison service. So no doubt they will probably come uh, together at some point behind bars. Um, Stephen Breen, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>